Well, a very happy Sunday morning to you. My name is Canon Howard. Actually, he was supposed to come uh, today, but no, he's coming next Sunday, so that's why I'm here. My name is Colin, and I'm very excited, but that doesn't matter because I have to get you guys excited. And you're probably already uninspired by the title of my sermon. So I wasn't sure how to get you guys excited. So I thought, well, let me start with a story. You can't go wrong with a story, right? So uh, next slide, please. Perfect. This is a story from a book entitled Hidden People how a remote New Guinea culture was brought back from the brink of extinction. The book is about a missionary couple, Des and uh, Jenny. You see Des there and Jenny somewhere in the background. There's not another lady there for all I know. I think she's the author of the book. And when the picture was taken, I think by then they had three ch children. Anyways, um, Des and Jenny were with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they wanted the smallest language group they could find. And that's how they ended up with the Bainumerian people, all 111 of them, somewhere in Papua New Guinea. So Des, the missionary, he had a language helper called Sizia, one of the locals. And one day, Des and Sizia sat down together to finally finish translating the book of Matthew. They still had to translate the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew. They had kept those uninteresting verses until the end. <clears throat> Surprisingly, Sizia uh, did not seem bored at all uh, going through those 17 verses. And also, surprisingly, Sizia made no comment on the translation, as he usually did. But when Sizia rose from his work, he said quite deliberately, uh, there's going to be an important meeting in the house of Nami P tonight. And Des, I want you to come and bring what we've done today. So Des wondered what, what, what's up with him, uh, why a meeting tonight? Oh, maybe he wants to celebrate finishing Matthew. But why does he want me to bring what we've translated today? So that night, Des took the lantern and he walked to the house of Nami P. He walked into the central room to find it already filled to capacity. All Sizia's family were there around the fire and two other rooms off to either side were also packed with people. Des had never seen so many packed into a house before. There was also an odd sense of tension in the air that made him nervous. Uh, he was led immediately to a seat on the floor beside the fire, and Sizia took command and spoke. I have asked Mr. Des to come and read what we translated this morning. I cannot tell it to you. I want you to hear it for yourselves. And the room became very still. And Des 
was conscious that all eyes were focused on him. He cleared his throat <clears throat> and began to read. These are the ancestors of Jesus Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And Dez could not look up. His eyes were glued to the text. He was trying to read naturally, but it was difficult. He did not see the eyes of some people grow wider and rounder. But he became conscious that several people were moving near to him. Actually, more and more people began pressing. The people from the other rooms were pushing into the, the central room. One man was so close that his beard almost touched a written page. Somebody's arm was rammed right against his, and Dez started feeling scared. He had a sense of being crushed, but not just that, it was the silence. It seemed that not a dog barked, not a baby cried, not a person released his breath. He wondered if maybe the list of names was offending some kind of ritual taboo. Well, if that was the case, he was in an awkward position. There was no way to go. And with the atmosphere so charged, he did not dare ask a question, so he just kept on reading. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. There are 14 generations from Abraham to King David, and 14 from King David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Dez raised his eyes to look at those within a breath of his face. But he did not see anger, though. What he saw was incredulity. Somebody demanded, why didn't you tell us all this before? A second person stated, well, no one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. A third added, it's only real people who record their genealogical table. A fourth voice, his voice ringing with astonishment, cried, Jesus must be a real person. And then everyone seemed to be talking at once. Fourteen generations, that's two hands and a foot from Abraham to King David, and two more hands and a foot to the time of the captivity, and another two hands and a foot till Jesus' time. Well, that's a very, very long time. Well, this ancestry goes back further than ours. Yes, none of our ancestry goes back two hands and a foot three times. Jesus must have been a real man on this earth then. He's not just white man's magic. Well, then what the mission has taught us is real. End of story. So what's the lesson for us? Well, as Anglicans, we love to focus on the high view of Jesus. 
The high view of Jesus is the view that we get when we start reading the Gospel of John. What does John do? John immediately identifies Jesus as the pre-existing Word of God who shared God's divine nature, the infinitely precious Son of God, through whom all things were made. And because of this, Jesus could die for the sins of all mankind, something no mere man could have done. And these wonderful mysteries we contemplate every Easter season. But it's not Easter that's coming up, it's Christmas. And during the Christmas season, we don't focus on the death of Jesus, we focus on his birth. And to focus on the birth, we cannot go to John, because John doesn't talk about the nativity, right? We have to go to the early chapters of Matthew and Luke. In those chapters, we have not the high view, but a lower view of Jesus. We don't have Jesus, the divine word of God. Instead, we have Jesus, the promised king, the son of David, and by extension, the son of Adam. And yet, get this, it is that lower view of Jesus that hit the Bainumerian people of Papua New Guinea in the stomach like a ton of bricks. Now, that's quite a mind bender, isn't it? Wrap your mind around that. So do we need the lower view of Jesus? You better believe it. Now keep in mind, just want to be clear, Luke does have the high view of Jesus. And that becomes clear in the book of Acts. As you know, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. But Luke thinks that the lower view of Jesus is so meaningful, so valuable, so helpful that this is all he uses in his entire gospel, and he gets a lot of mileage out of it. So I, I don't like to call that the lower view. That sounds negative to me. I would rather call it the Jewish view of Jesus. And we're really missing out if we neglect the Jewish view of Jesus. But I do think it's been neglected. But this is the season to look at it, right? If there is a season to reflect on the Jewish view of Jesus, this is it. So let's do it and let us summarize. Next slide, please. No, too far. Too far. Yes, high view of Jesus is in the Gospel of John. It says in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made through him and the word became flesh, etc. That's John. The lower view, which I call the Jewish view of Jesus, Gospel of Luke. Luke gives the gene genealogy of Jesus, starting with Joseph, Heli. He goes on, eventually he meets David, Jesus, son of David. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going up and up the tree. Eventually he makes his way to the son of Adam, and then we are greeted with an absolute shocker. Adam is the son of God. So that raises an, in, an interesting question. 
What does God, uh, sorry, what does Luke mean when he says the son of God? He doesn't seem to use the expression the same way we do, the way you and I would understand the son of God. There seems to be a disconnect over here. Uh, the simple answer, very simple answer, Luke is thinking like a Jew, speaking to Jews. And for a Jew who is well versed in the Old Testament, son of God could mean one of two things. Next slide, please. So for a Jew, son of God could mean, first of all, simply one who owes his existence to God's direct creative activity. So in that sense, Adam qualifies, right? Because God created Adam from the dust. Also, God created the human life of Jesus in a womb. So he also qualifies in that sense as a son of God. Look what it says here. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I cannot conceive and bear a child. And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And therefore, the child to be born will be the son of God. Notice, therefore. Why? Will Jesus be the Son of God because the Holy Spirit will overtake Mary, enabling her to conceive and bring forth a son? So both Adam and Jesus, in that Jewish sense, are sons of God. Therefore, Jesus wasn't the first in that sense. Jesus is a second. Jesus is a second Adam. And Paul talks about second Adam. So I didn't make this up. Uh, next slide. Son of God could also mean a second thing in Luke. It could mean one who rules in the name of God, a king who rules in the name of God. Because God is a sovereign, right? God is a king. And he who rules under him then becomes his son. And we see that very clearly in King Solomon. Three places in the Bible... It says that King Solomon was a son of God. Second Samuel says, and that's Nathan, the prophet Nathan, speaking in the name of God to David about King Solomon. says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In Chronicles, again, he says, he shall be my son. I will be his father. And a little later in the same book, he says, I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So what about King Jesus? Well, all the more, Jesus is God's anointed king. So he is the son of God par excellence. And that was my impersonation of a French-challenged Anglophone. How, how am I doing? Look what it says here from Luke. He will be called the son of the Most High and in the same breath. The author says, and the Lord God will give him a throne, and he will reign. It all goes together. If you're the son of God, that's what you do. You rule. You have a throne and you reign. Adam also was destined to reign for God. And therefore, again, Jesus was a second Adam in that sense. 
Now that requires more explanation. Maybe you've got question marks going on in your head. Adam was destined to reign for God. I have to say a few things about that. I can prove my point. Um, <clears throat> I can prove it. Uh, when Adam and Eve were created, now here's a great quiz question. I'm going to pose it to you. What is the first thing God said to them? Thank you, exactly. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So they checked that box, right? Historically, it's not been very difficult to convince men and women to multiply. Uh, however, they were not to multiply for the sake of multiplying. Because it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Aha, so that was the point. They were supposed to multiply to fill the earth. But even that, they checked that box, but even that was not the point, the final point. Because it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and your point. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., etc. So that was the divine project. Adam and Eve were to subdue and dominate the freshly ordered surface of the earth. A number of years ago, I was reading Genesis to my daughter, Geneviève. I asked her a trick question. Was God doing a good thing when he asked Adam to subdue and dominate? I loved her answer. It was genius. She just gave me two words. It depends. And of course, God did not want Adam and Eve to rule over creation like a Hitler like a Stalin, like a Pol Pot. Obviously not. Surely God intended a loving sacrificial reign. He intended the reign of shepherds who nourish their flock and protect it. He intended a reign that relies on God for the discernment of good and evil. In short, God wanted Adam and Eve to reign for him. He wanted them to administer the dominion of God over creation. But it was not to be so, as you know, the adversary, the devil, convinced Adam and Eve that they should administer the dominion of the dominion of Adam and Eve. The couple decided that God could not be trusted, that they would be better off trusting themselves. And ever since, it has been effectively the reign of the devil also known as the reign of sin and death. But God has not abandoned his project. He had it all planned out. In due time, God sent a worthwhile successor to Adam, Jesus, the second Adam. And that Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus confronted the devil with the scriptures and defeated him. That very day, the kingdom of God finally had its king. And Jesus started proclaiming the good news about the coming to earth of the reign of God. And when his disciples asked him how to pray, he said, pray for the coming on earth of the reign of my Father God.
which reminds me of a recent sermon. So that parallel between Adam and Jesus is an amazing parallel. There's more I could say about it, but this is enough. But just so you know, next slide, please, uh, Kingsley. Uh, Paul does speak on, on the second Adam in two places. It's a real theme. Romans, 1 Corinthians. All right. One last point. My last point is that Luke presents Jesus also as the son of David. As you know, David was, was a king of ancient Israel. He was also a man according to God's own heart. And God made amazing promises to him. And let's look at those promises. Next slide. Second Samuel. Nathan said to David, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that is a running theme in the Bible. It's in a number of places. Uh, for example, in the Psalms 89, it's very clear God puts all his weight on this. He says, I will not violate my covenant. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever in his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So an eternal throne, but also an eternal offspring to sit on the throne. And we see that finally in Luke the fulfillment of that prophecy. It wasn't Solomon. Solomon didn't work out. It was Jesus. Gabriel said, Jesus will be great, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we Anglicans understand this to mean a Jesus will reign forever. No issue with that. But I have a question. Why is he sitting on the throne of David? If one of us were sitting on the throne of England, it would not be to rule over the Danes or to rule over the Swedes. It would be to rule over the British, right? Because that's what the throne of England means. It's a throne from which you rule over the British. So, if someone should sit on the throne of David, you would think it would be to rule over the Jewish people. At the very least, the Jewish people. And sure enough, look at Luke. I will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. And I'm a little scared not to believe it. Because I know of a guy who doubted the angel Gabriel. And he lost his voice. Yeah, it didn't go over very well. Things didn't quite work out for him. Uh, Gabriel has some very high connections. You can trust the guy. So, yeah, I tremble at the thought of, 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 of doubting that. Uh, you know, there is a stubborn tradition that says that God is done with the Jewish people. 
But given what Gabriel said, how can I be so sure that God has no interest in reigning over the descendants of Jacob? Did you know that the Jewish people are increasingly turning to the Lord Jesus? This movement is not something you will hear about in your favorite news outlet. But if you go to the website of One for Israel, you will be amazed to find out what is happening. And there you will find hundreds of video testimonies of Jewish people who are discovering their own Messiah. Let me read you a few excerpts from the testimony of a Jewish fellow called Jonathan Kahn. I quote, I remember being in Hebrew school and watching the film strips of David and Isaiah and Elijah and the reality of God. God was so real in what they told us in the Bible. He spoke to people, he moved in their lives. Whether it was Moses in the burning bush or Abraham being called by God, there was a big gap between what I saw in the living, breathing God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and what I saw in a synagogue. In a synagogue, I never saw anybody saying, wow, God, he changed my life. It never happened. The rabbi never said, hey, the Lord just led me today. Never happened. It was more liturgy and more rituals. It was kind of like the echoes of what once was, that there was once a glory, but the glory wasn't there. The presence wasn't there. It was more a cultural thing. People went to synagogue because they were Jewish. That is what we do because of tradition. Therefore, I'm questioning the whole thing. How do I know it is a God? I don't see the evidence. How do I know he exists? Tradition is not God. It may be nice, but that's not God. And what people have told me is not God either. And even if they're religious, that's not it either. I have to find God for myself. I have to find the truth for itself. I started reading the prophecy of the Jewish Messiah. Next slide, please. In Micah, it says he'll be born in Bethlehem. And I'm thinking, Bethlehem? That's Catholic. How did that get into our Bible? And then I'm reading about the Messiah and Zechariah, that he's going to come to Jerusalem riding a donkey. I said, well, I heard that. I heard about that. Something like Palm Sunday. But what's that doing here? It said that he would be a light to the Gentiles. And he will even be rejected by my own people for a time. And then I read in Isaiah 53, that it said that the Messiah, our Messiah, is going to die for our sins. I always thought, that's Catholic. That's not Jewish. But it was there. Clearly. And I'm trying not to connect it, but it's connecting. And I didn't want to accept it, but I couldn't argue against it. If I'm seeing this one, this... <clears throat> If I'm seeing this one, this Yeshua, in the Hebrew scriptures, I will have to see something Jewish in the New Testament or the New Covenant scriptures. So finally, I get to the point where I'm going to open up what I know as the New Testament. 
And this is a forbidden book. I'm expecting something Catholic. You know, I'm expecting something so foreign, something so non-Jewish. Nevertheless, I open it up and I read the genealogy of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes down all these Hebrew names and all the Jewish names. And then as I'm reading it, he's quoting from the Hebrew scriptures again. And that's just what I would expect the Messiah to do. And it clearly upholds Israel. It says in the New Testament, you have to bless the Jewish people. You have to love the Jewish people. That's what I found. Surprise. All right, it's time to summarize. Luke offers the so-called low view of Jesus. That view has been neglected, but it contains unsuspected riches. Understanding Son of God as Luke does, as, as Jews do, we are reminded that Jesus is the second Adam, the one who vanquished the devil and inherited the kingdom of God. And also, understanding Son of David, as Luke does, as the Jews do, the impression we get is that the Jewish people, far from being forsaken forever by God, they remain somehow at the center of God's plan. And my wife, Jose, wanted to make sure that I left you with an application. Okay, how do we apply that? Well, I will just say this. And it's not nothing, I think. In the name of God, bless the Jewish people and love the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. The time may come when the pressures to curse the Jewish people will become very great. And are we going to resist the tide? Let us pray that one day we would see some Jewish people at Emmaus. And let us pray that here they would find the glory and the presence.